0: Hello, listeners of Memory Motel, it's Terrence, and I have a treat for you. While working on season two of the show, I thought it would be nice to send you a sweet Sonic Valentines. So I've got two love stories for you. The first one starts in a busy market, where Anne and Tad meet. And even though they're both strangers, they have an odd sense of having already known each other.
1: Well, I was at Reading Terminal Market and Philly with my friend Jan. And we were sitting having lunch, and I look up across the, the long space, and there was this man sitting there at the sushi bar, just staring at me with a big smile. And I said, Jan, that guy's staring at me. Smi- look at his smile.
2: I had been a cook for a long time, and my father was like, let's go to Reading Terminal Market. And so we went down to Reading Terminal Market, and I mean, picture Reading Terminal Market sort of bursting into bloom. We're kind of wandering around, and and I look over, and there's somebody looking at me, and I just started smiling, and it was very strange because you know I don't you don't like typically just start smiling at someone that you see. I mean, and it was a very strange moment, um, and and I thought, yikes.
1: You know, I just kind of registered in my mind, and we kept eating, and then he still was looking at me, and. We decided to get up, and we were walking around, looking at all the different things that are there. So
2: I started wandering around with my father. And
1: I said, Jan, I'm, I'm going to go find that guy. And it was as if I was being led to do it. I went through the whole terminal and found him at the uh, grocery line, and in general, I had been pretty shy in terms of just going up to complete strangers but for some reason I felt like compelled
2: and finally she came up to me and and said hello and
1: and I said excuse me excuse me uh, I couldn't help but notice you from across the room you have the most beautiful smile
2: and um, I was very happy that she did that
1: and he said I noticed you too are you a painter and I said well yes
2: I just had some intuitions about her and I thought and I asked her that question. Um
1: I went to school for painting, have a BFA in painting, and I was looking at my pants and wondering if I had paint on me and you know but he said, Well, so am I.
2: I felt I felt like this was somebody that I had known all my life. I remember the most intense
1: feeling looking in his eyes and feeling like I knew him forever.
2: And I actually had the presence of mind to ask her for her phone number, which I, I I don't think I'd ever done before in my life.
1: And it was just like there was something that was supposed to happen.
2: Is that light always on?
3: I had murdered somebody, and I didn't know who.
1: Can you trust that, you know? I remember
3: you. Even- I remember you?
1: I just can remember. I do remember. He said it was like heaven. It was
3: heaven. Those stories were the essence of what it was to be alive.
0: As if hush. Tad was visiting his parents, who happened to live in the same neighborhood as Anne in Philadelphia. He only planned to stay for a few days, but he wanted to see Anne before he left.
1: I told him, well, I couldn't really get together with him. Um, for a whole week. And, and I, I do remember he said this. He said, well, I've waited for you my whole life. I can wait a week. And I was like, what is going on here? It was just too, you know, like out of the storybook. Our first date was in uh, Manioc. We, we had sushi and we walked to the Wissahickon Creek along Main Street. And then, and then we had a pretty intense relationship for six months.
2: It was like finding, I don't know, like the missing piece. It was a very special and happy
0: time. Anne and Tad started a long-distance relationship between Philadelphia and
2: Vermont. And we saw one another when we could over the next few months.
1: When I did go to Vermont, you know, we, we were just so compatible in terms of what we loved to do. So we would make these wonderful meals together. He might not admit it, but he's a good dancer, and we would dance in the kitchen, and we would go out, and we would paint together out, outdoors, and um, I, was, I was learning to play the guitar and sing, and he had a little mandolin.
2: I really never had anything like I had with her. There there was never a someone in my life that was sort of at that level, and yet we couldn't be in the same place. It was not going to be possible for her to move to Vermont. That wasn't something that was in the equation. But but I did, I did consider uh, going back to Philadelphia, but Philadelphia represented some things that were really important for me to, to be apart from.
1: And the reason it wasn't an option was because his parents lived in Philadelphia, and he that's a source of a lot of pain for him.
2: I had sort of been raised to be a cog. I had a mother who was sort of ambitious educationally, so I went to Andover, Yale. Um, but by the time I got to Yale, I was like, you know, this ticket is not to my destination. So Vermont was sort of the final iteration of that because that was where things really began to fall into place for me in a lot of ways. But what started to happen was kind of odd for me because I, I really, it was almost like I began to fall apart. And when we were in the same place, everything was fine, but when we weren't, things began to get progressively sort of odder for me. Um, And I didn't quite understand why, except that I was beginning to have difficulty concentrating. I was beginning to have difficulty teaching. I was beginning to have difficulty doing my work.
1: Like, okay, well, I guess that means I'm going to have to update what's possible. And this is not possible for me to stay in the relationship if he can't figure out how to deal with that.
0: And by that, And means Tad's difficulty with expressing himself. Here's an example.
1: We were sort of in a rush trying to make it to a party. He did not tell me he was having social anxiety. He can't communicate his true feelings, that he's feeling fragile. We go in, and (laughs) I introduce Tad to this person. But he's kind of behind me. And I, I, I looked over my right shoulder. I couldn't see him. I looked over my left shoulder. I couldn't see him. And I made the mistake of saying to my friend there in public, where is Ted? Are you hiding? Oh, my God. He, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was like 100. We go up into the bedroom and have this
2: major talk. The trigger was I nailed him. I didn't want to be there, and, and I didn't understand how to say that. But that was a real realization to me that, that I had to get more aware. I, certainly not a shining moment in, in my human career, but, but it, it taught me in no uncertain terms that, I had, that, I, that this emotional work is not optional. And so from the point of view of my life in Vermont, it was very easy to begin to see Anne as a problem.
1: That was my my validation for ending it, even though, like, everything else was exceptional and magical. It was like... Someone up there was writing the script. Okay, now they're going to spend six months together. They're going to have the best weekend in Vermont. And now they're going to end their relationship, but they don't really know why, but they both agreed to do it.
2: So Anne came up one final time. We had a really wonderful week.
1: We cooked together. We danced together. We hiked together. We went. We did We did everything that we loved, and that was the end.
2: And, and then I put her on a train, and, and she left, and it was... A, it was the most miserable I've ever been in my life. <laughs> and and so so that was a bad decision <laughs> because it was as a decision based on uh, fear, basically, which was that there wouldn't be a way for it to work out. I guess I had been taught to be tough, not by my father, actually, but by my mother. Mm-hmm. Certainly that was what they taught you in boarding school, at least at that point. And that's definitely what they taught you in Vermont. I mean, you know, it's like seven months of winter. Well, tough beans, you know, it's just what it is. So I tried to just say, okay, well, this is something that I have to learn to deal with.
1: I said to myself, well, if that's what happened, then it wasn't meant to be. So that kind of resignation that, well, I I guess I was just allotted that six months, you know, and i experienced that and that that was all i was supposed to be given so i never knew his heart was breaking
2: the only thing that was possible to do was to take ann and put her in this box you know i took the whole memory and i stuck it in a box
1: when i told my friends what it was like to be with tad after we separated i would say we connected on every level And I know that it's possible to connect with another person in this way because it happened with Tad. The intensity of it, you know, lasted through the whole time we were apart. I mean, in terms of my memory
0: of it.
2: That decision sort of haunted me in its own way for the next 16 years.
0: Even though Anne and Tad had gone their separate ways, over the years, Anne would revisit the place they met. And she'd keep tabs on him through the Internet.
1: I had a job where I went from Mount Airy to Center City every Wednesday. and I would go to Reading Terminal. That would be that would be where I would go for lunch after I taught. and And one of the things I would do is to check out his paintings because he has a pretty serious website with what he's up to. And I'm reading his blog, and he's saying that he was in Philadelphia. And he said he said the day he was at Philadelphia and it was on a Wednesday. Turns out, when I read the blog, that he was there the day I was there. And he said, I went to Reading Terminal, which is the place I met my last girlfriend,
2: meaning me. But but so I didn't go out with anybody else.
1: At that point, it was over 10 years. And I haven't been in his life for, for such a long time. But yet, we have been in each other's lives because we've been... I've been carrying him around in my, in my heart.
0: This coincidence prompted Anne to finally reach out to Tad.
2: I see, I think in 2008 she had put out a CD and, and sent me a link to it.
1: So anyway, I mailed him a CD and never, I never heard any contact from him at all.
2: I can remember, uh. Um, clicking on the first song, and I, I lasted about four seconds. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't hear a voice <laughs> any more than that.
1: Seventeen years of telling all my my best friends, oh yes, there was Tad, and they all know who Tad was. He was the one that you could do everything with, and the one that was so creative and open and fun and enjoyable, and you know. And then how many boyfriends through seventeen years, and nothing. Comparable to that, the depth that we connected—nothing, nothing comparable.
2: Most of my my sales, most of what I was doing was online, and I still was wondering, well, what am I doing here? Um, and that's when I had this um, this dream about Anne. She was uh, dressed like in a Greek outfit on the one hand, and she was saying, "This is too hard. Uh, I'm dying. This is just too hard." I'm dying. And there were several sort of reiterations of that. And that dream really upset me. I woke up really, really upset. And I thought, Ann can't be dying. It's just not possible. It was almost like somebody said, okay, what's going to upset him so much that he'll just stop being such a jerk and get back in touch with her? So I looked her up.
1: I got an email from Tad, and I believe it said in the subject box apologies or beginnings of and i was on the phone with my friend lynn i said lynn you will not believe who i got an email from tad
4: tad really (laughs) tad
1: because she knows who tad was (laughs) she never met him though (laughs) she only met him through my memories
2: and that's and that's when we started talking again Uh, and that was uh about 16 years after we stopped talking
1: so we end up calling on that Saturday and talking and talking and talking and having a wonderful connection. And at one point in, in these calls we were having, it came out that he he actually said that he would consider moving to Philadelphia. And I was like, what? Because that was not an option before.
2: And we talked for a couple of weeks before we could figure out what what to do and
1: and it just so happens that the apartment above me was going to be for rent. Maybe I'll ask my landlord if we could just rent it for a month and see, he could he could just come and stay up there for a month and we could see if there's anything.
2: And it turned out that the apartment above her was gonna be vacant and so we arranged for me to rent that for a month and...
1: I was able to negotiate two months. My friends were saying, well, how do you know he doesn't weigh 300 pounds and you know... <laughs> after 17 years and you know they're like like you know what do you mean you're just going to meet him and he's going to live in your the upstairs apartment for two months you know it's like whoa yeah
0: (laughs) you hadn't physically seen each other no (laughs)
1: no No.
2: um and so i i got back and and it really did feel oddly like coming home The, the neighborhood was almost exactly the same the trees just get bigger, but everything else is the same. We were both there again the way we had been.
1: When we first got together, oh, my God, all my friends, oh, my God, this could be a movie. You should write this down. Are you taking notes? I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like we were stars or something, you know.
2: I guess the thing that I'm really grateful for is that I had a second chance.
1: So it's, it's like we, we get a second chance to, to connect in even a deeper way.
2: Life gave me a second chance with this, which was, um, you know, the only thing I regretted was that I hadn't, that I had been too frightened, that I hadn't seen, that there wasn't that much to be afraid of.
0: Love story can unfold over years, or in the case of Heather and Len, one minute and 29 seconds.
3: I met her in Stratford, Ontario, and we were attracted to one another immediately.
5: I don't know the moment. The moment I shook his hand and looked in his eyes, there was like a ticker tape that went through my head that said, "Oh my God, are you in trouble? All the magazines tell you uh, you shouldn't get involved." in a major relationship so quickly after these major events in your life
3: because she just lost her sister to cystic fibrosis and her marriage broke up all in within six months of one another and she was in no shape to be dealing with anybody so she didn't want to meet me even a
5: very close friend of mine who was my only single friend got it in her head that len and i would
3: make a fine couple. She said, Oh, but you got to meet this girl. She's really special. And I went, Okay, okay. So we're on a date, our first date. I said, Tell me a little bit about yourself. She said, uh, In the last year, I've lost my sister. My marriage broke up, and I'm going on a whitewater rafting trip, and I can't swim. I said, Well, if you make it back, give me a call. I'd like to take you out to dinner.
5: He was persistent. And so when I came back,
3: we thought we'd better put everything right on the table. And, and we both said, look, this isn't going to lead to marriage. We like one another, and we should spend some time with one another. And, and you know, and when it's over, it'll be over, and we'll go our separate ways.
5: In October is our 29th wedding anniversary. We've
0: been together 35 years. For me, Heather and Len have a great love story because they have baggage. They had reasons for not getting together, but they did anyway. What Heather had lost, a sister and a marriage, didn't stop her from falling in love again or whitewater rafting. But then one day, years later, the memory of her sister's death would return to test her. I went and
3: had this test, and my cardiologist came to me and said, this is no longer uh, an elective. You have acute stenosis of the aortic valve, and we need to do something about it. He said, I'm going to talk to the surgeons, and he said, I will call you on Monday. And I said, oh, okay. Well, I got home, and he had already called home, thinking I was at home, and he got Heather.
5: The phone rings, and it's Harvey, Len's cardiologist. I knew Len had gone for an appointment that afternoon uh, for a pre-op evaluation for elective surgery. So he calls us, says, it's Harvey, is Lynn there? No, where is he? I don't know. He's probably at the Friars Club playing cards. And then there's this pause during which my stomach drops because something about that pause, it's a pause I know. There's been a lot of loss in my life and uh, I, growing up, I was shaped a, a lot by the fact that we were always really living on the brink of impending death. And he says, well, um, when will he be home? And I said, well, not till later. He says, well, then I guess I'll have to tell you. Tell me what? Well, we found something during the test today. And, um, well, Len has critical aortic stenosis. And I'm thinking, what the fuck is that? And I'm grabbing the nearest piece of paper at the back of an envelope, and I'm writing down, critical aortic stenosis so I can Google it later and uh, so I said well so what what does that mean and um, Harvey begins to explain um, about the aortic valve and that Len needs surgery and the sooner the better and then he starts going on and rattling off dates and places and things that have to be done in the cath lab and I say wait hold on Harvey wait a minute slow down, give, just give me a minute with this. He said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a minute. And then he just waited with me in the silence. He allowed for the terror that I suddenly felt to enter a- as it had to, and then <clears throat> kind of dissipate. I, I, I took a couple of breaths and, and I looked at the river and I kind of looked around the apartment at some of the clutter, and it wasn't registering, and yet it was actually sort of burning itself on my brain. Even now I can see the image of the the color of the river. Um, And then I said, okay, Harvey, go ahead, tell me.
0: To deal with the news, Heather's mind raced to the future. Len was scheduled to perform at Carnegie Hall in a few weeks, and she started to imagine what might happen.
5: I'm writing the story of... Uh, My husband's going to have this surgery, and maybe he'll die, and then there'll be no Carnegie Hall, and uh, instead I'll be organizing a memorial, maybe at Carnegie Hall. Uh, Oh gosh, now, um, okay, I'll have to get a David Meister dress. I mean, it's stupid kind of thinking, but this is the practicalities, but no, 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 no. There's a different story, and that story is, no, we're going to have this surgery. It's going to be a brilliant success. He's going to sing at Carnegie Hall in four weeks, and he's going to stop the show.
3: So I arrived home six hours, five hours after I'd been to the doctor, and I walk in the door, and she's there trying not to be upset. And I go, what's wrong? And she said, well, Harvey, heck my cardiologist called me today, so I know what's going on. And I said, what? What's going on? And she said, well, you've got acute stenosis of the aortic valve. You've got to have it operated on, and you're going into the hospital on Tuesday. And I went, how about that?
5: Glenn came home that night, and I made dinner, and he behaved as if Nothing much was going on. Uh, I had remembered that um, when my sister was dying and I was um, very distraught, uh, a doctor gave me a great piece of advice and he said, just take your cue from her and she'll tell you when it's time to get upset. So I took my cue from Len all weekend and he's a very self-contained, calm person. Uh, very keeps everything very close to the chest so as long as he remained contained I also remain contained so we had a very kind of normal weekend even though inside I was really churning I like to know everything I can sort of being con in some sense of control of what's going on in these situations and of course I googled the operation seen videos of a similar operation and imagining this, you know. I mean they're here they're going to saw my husband's chest open. They're they're gonna clamp it open. They're gonna put him on bypass. It means they're gonna stop his heart. That beautiful heart that he sings with and acts with and loves me with. The surgeon is going to reach his hands into the cavity of my husband's chest.
3: I mean, I guess I didn't really realize what it was they were going to do to me uh, and, you know, how how major it was. Um, ignorance is bliss, I guess, in some uh, instances. and. It, and I just, I, I don't know, I had perfect faith that I'd be able to do it. My surgeon, Alan Stewart, is there with the cardiologist, Harvey Hecht. And uh, I said to him, uh, I have to sing at Carnegie Hall on, in a month. So do a good job, would you? I had been playing him
5: the Brandenburg concertos while they shaved his chest and uh, the doctor had come along and uh, and then it was time and he just said see you on the other side and i kissed him and i didn't know if it was going to be the last time that i kissed him i mean even when i i was helping him get dressed just before we went to the prep area there were these canary yellow socks in the package i gave him and i i thought this this could be the last our last moments together, and our last moments together could mean him sitting there in a shower cap and canary yellow big bird socks, as I dubbed them, uh, which he has enough dignity to carry off. But it's just not how you imagine it might be. God, it was like a scene from a movie. I I, I was just standing there watching him go away. They were wheeling him away, and he was gone through the doors. He was just gone honestly I could it was like I could feel the prayers that were being said in that waiting room in the air around me like they were the air was just thick you could it was tickling my skin honestly the prayers that were going up and they handed me a um, one of those light up things that they give you at restaurants sometimes or that you you know this thing will light up when your tables ready so they just said, hold on to this. And, you know, when he's out of surgery and the doctor's ready to come down, this thing will light up. Oh, man. And then you just you just sit. Uh, and there's no reading. There's no watching TV. There's just holding your breath, really, for one hour, two hours, three hours. They said it should be done in three hours three hours i start looking for the light it's not going on three and a half hours it's not going on four hours the light is not going on i'm trying not to hyperventilate now i'm trying not to think bad thoughts finally about four and a half hours my table is ready the lights go on and i see dr stewart He's a sh- short guy and, and in green scrubs, and he's striding towards me from the far, far end of the, this very long waiting room. And he's making this walk, and he's either carrying joy or he's carrying grief with him. And he's got to open one of those hands, the joy hand or the grief hand. And I'm trying to tell from the way he's walking what the news is he gets closer and i see okay he's got a little bounce in his step and and then he gets right up to me i'm standing there waiting and he says uh it went beautifully and he was only on bypass for half an hour and that it had gone very well and i could see him in a few hours and you know to be honest he said uh once we saw what was in there we couldn't believe that he was out there walking around he said people with what your husband had don't usually make it to the table oh god I just uh, I was so well relief is an understatement I, I just you know I was so scared to touch him he's so wired up and but anyway I but I found his leg and I just I just held on to his leg for a few minutes he's there he's warm he's solid and now lens coming out of it a little bit and uh, i lean over him and i can see his eyes and uh, he always tells the story of when his father saw him first in a play his dad said to him you did good kid so that's what i said to him you did good kid
3: i woke up it was over i thought it was 5 minutes ago once i came out of the you know out of the drugs i was given you know the okay that everything had gone swimmingly and uh, I'd had open-heart surgery and they'd removed the aortic valve and replaced it with a with a cow's valve Heather moves at it every once in a while
0: with the surgery behind them Heather and Len had no idea how it would go for Len at Carnegie Hall but they made it there
5: off we go and we're in a box at Carnegie Hall and we're all dressed up to the nines and it's a, it's just an exciting night anyway because it's uh, Nathan Lane and Patrick Wilson and Megan Mullally and and guys and dolls in Carnegie Hall. I just don't know what to expect. He hasn't told me much but what he's told me is how long the stage at Carnegie Hall is, how how hard
3: it is to go walk across that just in his present stage. It's a vast, big, wide, wide stage. I felt weak as a kitten, of course. Maybe I'm not going to be able to do this. And my
5: heart's just beating. The place is packed, and Len makes his first entrance.
3: You can see virtually everything. You, it's just, you know, it's kind of awe-inspiring. I thought, well, you're out there and you know how to do it, so just do it, you know. Just stand and deliver.
5: He's there. He's Len. He's performing. He's. They've given him a little triangle instead of the big bass drum that his character usually would play. I, I think it should always be a triangle, actually, the way he did it. And he delivers his first line, and he gets a laugh, and and I relax, and I breathe. And then we get to Len's song.
3: I get to sing a ballad, and it's the only song that I get to sing by myself. And he starts to sing.
5: And a sound comes out of him. I've been listening to this man sing for 30 years. And I have never heard him sing like this. This sound that came out of him was, gave me shivers. It was so, it was exquisite. And I wasn't the only one who heard it because the place just, I don't know how many thousands of people were in Carnegie Hall that night, but you could have heard a pin drop While he sang, we're all, like, everybody's bawling their eyes out as he's singing this beautiful song. And so he does it, and he finishes. Beat, 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 silence. And then the place went fucking nuts. Carnegie Hall just exploded.
3: The applause was inordinate.
5: It was like everybody in the place knew
3: It was like everybody in the audience knew that I'd had the operation.
5: But they couldn't have known. How could they have known?
3: I thought, nobody knows I had this operation. I mean, he literally stopped the show. In fact, it was a little embarrassing. Sarah Bogus and I were standing on the stage, and the audience kept applauding, and we were kind of going,
0: wow. After following Len's lead through his operation and performance, Heather finally stopped to hear what she'd kept at bay, her fear of what might have happened.
5: About three days after we got home from the hospital, we're sitting there on the couch, I'm starting to let down a little bit. And as I let down, I spontaneously cry. I have not wept in front of him since the doctor called to say he has critical aortic stenosis. I have been Miss Cheerleader, Miss I've got it together. I'm going to speak to the doctors. I'm going to make it all happen. So now I'm going to let down a little bit and I just start to spontaneously cry. So he's looking at me and he goes, what the fuck is your problem? This is so typical. What the fuck is my problem? I I don't have a problem. I'm just, we've been through a big thing here and I'm letting down a little bit. Well, what'd you think I was going to die or something? Len, there was always that possibility. I mean, And then I explained to him, here's what they did to you. Do you know what they did to you? Are you even aware? And you know how we watch ER on TV, and they've got those paddles, and the heart's going to start, or it's not. I said, that was me sitting down there. You were out. I was doing the hard work (laughs) along with the surgeon. So yes, now I'm letting down a little bit.
3: I just thought that it was an extraordinary human that was sitting across from me. I just thought I, I really was proud to know her. I thought she's got the guts of a burglar. And she just has an intestinal fortitude that's extraordinary to me. I'm saying extraordinary every night and it reminds me of when we got married and my toast to the bride. I said she was extraordinary about 13 times.
5: <laughs> what? Well he asked me if we had a song and then I told him about it amazes me that you have always sung to me and So he wondered if you would sing it to me now.
4: I'll give it a try. It amazes me It simply amazes me What she sees in me Dazzles me dazes me that I've learned to clip my wings and soften my ways these are ordinary things unworthy of praise yet she praises me Just knowing I'd try for her When so many would, if they could, die for her I'm the one who's worldly wise And nothing much fazes me but to see me in her eyes it simply amazes me